the plot to kill Jesus. Therefore many Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to, from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so they might arrest him. Jesus anointed at Bethany. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Martha... Then Mary took out a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The triumphal entry. <clears throat> the next day, the crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. 
Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the world has gone after him. Well, thank you so much, Kerry. It's great, it's great to be here, isn't it, to open up God's word together. Let's pray. What a privilege, Heavenly Father, to come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ and to, as it were, be the fly on the wall, to have that eye in to the events that led up to the cross. And so as we make our journey to Easter, please help us to have eyes open, to have hearts open, to have minds attentive, to understand Jesus better, to treasure him more, to believe in him more strongly, and to have our lives completely changed by him, ever more changed. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. When uh, my kids were little and I was more sleep deprived than I am at the moment, on Saturday mornings, I would hear the clomping of feet and desperately try and stay asleep or at least pretend to be asleep. And so I would be lying on my bed, on my side, and then inevitably I would hear clomp, 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 and uh, the breathing of a little face just near mine. <laughs> and um, I would try and pretend to be asleep. And normally after what my daughter would think would be a suitable length of time, about four seconds, <laughs> I would physically feel my eyes <laughs> being pried open and this beautiful little face staring into my eyes saying, look at me, look at me. Well, guess what? That phrase, picture, we don't have the pictures. We don't have pictures. Just that one. There was a picture of Kath and Kim. Look at me, look at me. Okay, that has become the Australian catch cry, right? Kath and Kim have summarised what God has been saying to each of us in our journey in John's gospel towards the cross. God is saying, look at me. Chapter 9, Jesus did something that had never been done before. He gave sight to someone who had never, ever been able to see. He's saying, look at me. I'm the light of the world. I'm the son of God, the son of man in the flesh. And then in chapter 10, in contrast to the uncaring Jewish leaders, Jesus says, look at me. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep I care. And then last week, to prove that he came to bring life in all its fullness to those who believe in him. He, the resurrection and the life, he restored life and wholeness to a friend who had been dead for so long that he had started decomposing. This had never been done before. So, if we have been wanting to sleep and to drift off into our own dreamland, Jesus has been standing at our bedside, kind of forcing our eyes open. <laughs> Look at me. When my daughter forced my eyes open, I had a choice. I could be 
irritated, I could close my eyes, I could roll over on the other side and say, leave me alone. Or I could respond to that beautiful face looking into mine, begging me to open my eyes and relate to her. Well, what are you gonna choose today? In today's passage, we see both of those reactions at the start, in the middle, and at the end of the passage. At the start, Jesus' raising of the Lazarus from the dead was a miracle that was so powerful, so undeniable, so extraordinary, so unprecedented, that, verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. So they opened their eyes. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They closed their eyes. That's at the start of the passage. Then in the middle, chapter 12, verse nine. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. So there's eyes open. But, verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Eyes closed. That's in the middle of the passage. And then at the end, chapter 12, verse 18, many people, because they'd heard that he had performed this sign, this miracle of Lazarus, they went out to meet him, eyes open. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone out after him. Eyes closed. Well, what are you gonna do? Eyes open, eyes closed. Um, you might have read the passage and thought, it's really hard to see the thread running through this. It seems like three episodes that are quite disjointed. But this what I've just outlined to you is the thread. Because what happens here, we're tracing the outfall of the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And I wanna say that of all the miracles, this is the one that really speaks to us. This is the one that we hope for. You know, it is something to make a lame person walk. But frankly, what good is that miracle for that person in 100 years time? unless they've been raised from the dead, okay? Same with the blind person who Jesus was able to make see. What good is that if he is gonna die and stay in the ground? Imagine yourself diagnosed with incurable cancer which through prayer God miraculously heals. What good is that in the long run if death is going to be the final say? But if death is genuinely overthrown, to have such a powerful public and irrefutable demonstration of this, then this really, really is good news, right? Because what would it say about the person who could do that? Jesus' raising of Lazarus was like a massive stone that was thrown into the pond of our lives, so massive that the waves are now moving outwards in a ring. The authorities are trying to stop them, but they can't. The waves are going out so quickly, it is a splash that changed the world. And as the waves keep spreading outwards in what's uncovered by the waves, we see glimpses of heaven and of hell. It's like it uncovers what's there. And it first comes out in Caiaphas's rather puzzling priest's 
perplexing prophetic pronouncement. <laughs> I thought of that. What he says is puzzling. Caiaphas's prophecy, he's the high priest. It sounds like he's Christian. So the other Jewish rulers ask, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man, Jesus, performing many miraculous signs. They can't deny it. Interesting, isn't it? They cannot deny it. Uh, it happened in history. And they are clearly exasperated and also they are afraid. They say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. What's so bad about that? They say, well, then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Now, I want you for a moment just to try and stand in the shoes of the Jewish leadership. Just imagine this. Um, you have power, but also you have an agenda. You do want to maintain the status quo. Because Judea, where you're in, is a hotbed of hot-minded Jewish people. But over you is the are the Romans, and the Roman Empire is vast and brutal and really good at suppressing any opposition. And Judea is part of it, but hot-headed hot Jewish people, right? But once a year, in the entire Roman Empire, everyone has to sacrifice to Caesar as a god. Everyone, of course, except the Jews. They are the only people in the Roman Empire who are let off the hook on this regard because the Romans can't even control them, right? Um, of all the people groups in the world, they, they were the ones not permitted to do this because they wouldn't. But that meant that Judea has a very uneasy relationship with Rome. Judea has a Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and the Romans are very brutal at squashing uprisings and revolts. And so you're a Jewish leader, and you know that if things get out of hand in Judea, if, for example, someone like this upstart Jesus comes and does the sort of public and outstanding miracles which cause people to flock to him and place their faith in him as the Messiah then Rome is not going to look favorably on this. He will be seen as a rival to Caesar because the Jews believe that the Messiah is the king of all kings. And that means that if a Messiah is acclaimed and has widespread following, then Rome is going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. And it won't just be one person who dies, it will be tens of thousands. So their fear is not a silly fear. In AD 70, in fact, this is precisely what happens. The Emperor Titus sends his armies against Jerusalem and destroys the temple, which had taken 46 years to build, and destroys the nation. And Judea is really no more. So it's not an irrational fear. Now imagine you're part of the Jewish ruling council and you have to maintain the status quo. That is what your agenda is. And then Jesus comes along. Well, in your meeting, you express your fear, and then Caiaphas, who's the high priest, speaks up, and he says, you know nothing at all. Really? You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Now, for those of us who are familiar with the idea that Jesus Christ died for sinners as a sacrifice in our place, Caiaphas sounds 
like a believer, as if God was speaking through him. And this is really what John insinuates. He did not say this on his own, like God spoke through him. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. It sounds like Caiaphas is saying that Jesus will die as a substitute for people and that through his death, he will gather Jews and Gentiles to himself and unite them together as the children of God. We know that's what Jesus actually did. But that's not what Caiaphas meant. (laughs) There is a double meaning going on here. There is another way to take it. And it's like this, that it's better for Jesus to die and for us to be rid of him than for the whole nation to run off and believe in him, acclaim him as the Messiah, and then we incur the wrath of Rome and tens of thousands will die. In other words, if he dies, the nation lives. It's his life instead of theirs. That's what Caiaphas meant. Now, can you sympathize with the Jewish leaders? Okay. We wonder if that was us, what would we have done? Well, as much as we might sympathize with them and understand the pressure that they are under, it is absolutely clear that their decision, their response was from hell. Because what did they then do? Verse 53, they then plot to take his life. They, the Jewish leaders who knew the scriptures, who knew the prophecies about the Messiah, when he actually came into human history, instead of welcoming him, instead of saying, guess what? God has promised that when the Messiah would come, the lame would walk, the deaf would hear, the blind would see, the dead would be raised, and praise God, Jesus has done all these things. He made the lame walk, he made the deaf hear, he made the blind see, he made the dead uh, come back to life again. Praise God, he has sent the Messiah. Praise God, we welcome him with open arms. That's what the Jewish leaders should have done. But they didn't. This was the moment that they pressed the go button on having Jesus crucified their Messiah. That decision comes straight from the pit of hell. And so comes the warning to you and me. It is possible for us to feel under pressure and to give in to the pressure of the day, the great pressure to maintain the status quo, thinking that that is the best decision. But it is possible for the the reality to be otherwise that this has the smell of sulfur about it. Michael mentioned the (laughs) Mardi Gras in Sydney, alluded to that, uh, which happened this weekend. Now, um, I think think it's true. We all feel immense pressure at this point in time in our culture. Uh, This is the thing that, you know, we have to deal with to endorse same-sex relationships in all of its expression. Okay, that's the pressure all of us feel under. And to endorse it is completely fine. Um, Last week I mentioned the recent decision that 
bishops in England, in the Church of England, uh, were coming under to bless same-sex marriages that had been conducted in marriage registry offices in England. And, you know, it's very easy to understand their leadership, the pressure that they felt. And you can just imagine the cries, can't you? You know, you have to be loving, you have to be tolerant, you have to accept everything within the LGBTQI community and their agendas. And, you know, those voices are very, very loud. And if you're in the hot seat, you have to make the decisions. You feel the pressure, right? And so the English bishops made their decision and they pronounced a decision that was accepted by General Synod to allow English churches to bless same-sex civil marriages. Now, we appreciate the pressure they're under. Was it from God? Well, it goes against the clear teaching of the Bible about human sex and sexuality and what is good for us. And it has brought grief, of course, to Christians who believe that what God says in the Bible about human sex and sexuality is actually written for our good. And the belief that to go against that in the long run is not for our good. Uh, it, It is within the orbit of sexual immorality. And Jesus said, you've got to be very careful about this. You know, he said, cut off your arm instead of going down that route because it's better to enter life maimed than to have two arms and go into hell. It will, it, it's an eternal issue, he says. It's not just this, that's an, you know, the sin that will send you to hell, but it's, it's one of them, right? Greed is another one that's a big issue for us, but this is one of them as well. And there, the, the decision of the bishops has brought grief to all those Christians, of course, within the Church of England, who f- feel same-sex attraction, who struggle with this, and yet have resolved to live a chaste life to honour God, and the decision of the bishops has effectively sent a message saying, you've got it wrong, and all your sacrifices for nothing. And as well as that, of course, their decision has brought grief to the worldwide Anglican church, who have owed so much to the English church in the past and have looked to them for leadership. So what happened this week? Well, this week, 10 Anglican primates, which doesn't mean monkeys, (laughs) 10 head bishops who represent the majority of confessing Anglicans around the world issued a public statement lamenting this decision because they said it marked the English church stepping away from biblical faith, breaking fellowship with their other Bible-believing Anglicans, And so therefore these primates called upon the English church, the English bishops, indeed the Archbishop of Canterbury, to repent. And they say, we can no longer recognize your authority. That was a big thing that just happened, right? But it took Anglican bishops from Africa, Asia, and Latin America to call out the English ones because the English bishops were saying that God's good teaching was not good. That what the Bible says is sinful is not sinful. And the behavior which Jesus said could take you to hell won't take you to hell. That's basically what they were saying. Now given that Satan is a liar, a deceiver, who really wants to destroy people, 
And given that God has been very clear, we can only say that their decision to conform to the status quo whiffs more of hell than of heaven. So just be careful. Be careful. Okay, let's go back to the passage. If the decision of the Jewish leaders was hellish, we need to see that the next episode is heavenly. This is a resurrection reunion. Now this is really a picture of heaven. John chapter 12 verses one to three. It describes this wonderful picture of post-resurrection life. It is post-resurrection, Lazarus has been raised. And here is Lazarus raised, he's back together, sharing a meal now with his sisters, Martha and Mary. The family that were in grief are in grief no longer. This is a family reunion post-resurrection, but there's a difference. It's not just a family reunion. Jesus is at the center. The meal is given in Jesus' honor. Lazarus is reclining at the table. Martha is serving them. And Mary, Mary, wow, she is honoring Jesus in the most extravagant and lavish and intimate way possible, really. She's pouring on his feet this jar of perfume. This is a pint. That's about two cups worth of really aromatic, I mean, imagine getting, guys, can you imagine pulling the stoppers off all your wife's perfume and pouring them on your friend's feet? Like, outright, what? Can you imagine? And then she wipes his feet with her hair. This is so expressive, so intimate, so extravagant. The cost of this perfume was a year's wages. What's that, $80,000 in Australia? Yeah. $80,000. This scene is a picture of heaven, of what resurrection life will be like. Families reunited, sharing a meal together, but giving honor to Jesus who's at the center, to Jesus who died for us. Because that's what the perfume was about. Jesus said, she is preparing me for my burial. Without knowing it, Mary didn't know this, but she was performing a prophetic act. An act that would look forward to what Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would do for Jesus in chapter 19, verse 38, when they would take Jesus' body down from the cross and anoint it with 35 kilograms worth of spices and perfumes. Now, we will honor him when we're in heaven. We will honor him like this. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive praise and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise because with your blood, You purchased men and women from every tribe and language and people and nation. We will praise him for his death for us. But even with such a heavenly picture, and it's beautiful, isn't it? We glimpse hell again in Judas, his deceptive denouncement of the money wasted in this extravagant and embarrassing indulgence of Mary towards Jesus. He denounces her. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? I mean, imagine what you could do with $80,000 for the poor. It is a denouncement, but it's deceptive. John says he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So there was nothing altruistic about Judas' denouncement. Jesus knew it, and he defends Mary. Leave her alone. 
You will, not, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, just as an aside, I do have to say, some people have understood from what Jesus says here about the poor, that Jesus says alleviating poverty is a waste of time because there will always be poor people among you. Almost as if Jesus is endorsing entrenched poverty. I want to say that's to completely misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He is not saying that we shouldn't spend money to lift people out of poverty. What he's saying is that the time that they have with him is extremely short. Now is the time to be spending money on him. If you don't do it now, you won't have another chance, whereas later on there'll be ample opportunities to spend money and help the poor later on. Now, this raises the question, why would Jesus say it's right to spend such a vast amount of money on himself? Well, Jesus says, it was intended by God that Mary should save this perfume for the day of my burial. He's speaking of his upcoming death. Again, why that amount? There's a logic running through what's happening. If the resurrection reunion we have seen is a picture of our final redemption, picture of heaven. That can only be possible if the price is paid first, the redemption price. Redemption from death and decay and judgment can only be possible if the redemption price has been paid. So it's natural that Jesus, in the very scene which speaks of heaven, speaks also of his need for his death and burial. And the costliness of this perfume, preparing him for his burial, that speaks to us as well. Because it points us to the immense value of his precious life. Jesus says it's right for him to be anointed so extravagantly. There's nothing wrong with it. It's perfectly fitting. Now, that's because his life is so astoundingly precious the sinless son of God. And that means his death will be immensely costly. But that very price on his life and the costliness of his death speaks to us because it shows that the redemption price to redeem humanity from death and decay, that can be paid with a price paid so highly, you see. And so that's where he's taking us, we can see it. Those who were there had much more immediate hopes. This comes out in the final scene where there is a double take. The next day, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. We had it acted out. The Jews grab palm branches. This isn't in the Bible, this came from the second century BC, 162 AD, when a Judean um, defense led by Judas Maccabeus against the Syrians who were invading. They, they, they won, the Jews won. And people yelled, held palm branches. So it's like a national flag. It's very Jewish nationalistic, right? So they're holding palm branches on this occasion. When Jesus comes in, like the, the flag, they're waving the flag. And they yell praises to God, welcoming Jesus as the Messiah King. Blessed is the King of Israel. Blessed is the name of the Lord. Uh, Hosanna, which means Lord, save us now. 
The crowd were looking for Jesus to be that supernatural military savior, the one who would overthrow the Roman overlords, the one who would establish Jerusalem as the chief city in the world. That's what they were hoping for. But then Jesus causes a double take on that interpretation because he comes into Jerusalem, as Simon said, not riding a war horse, a stallion, but a donkey. He's showing he will not be the military savior figure they're looking for. And indeed, it's now only five days before the Passover when Jesus gets crucified. Let me bring the threads together. By raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus has thrown a big rock into the pond of our world, so huge that it's really upended our world. Our world languishes under the shroud of death. But the picture we get of what resurrection brings, a family reunited with Jesus at the center, that is heavenly. And so no wonder witnesses of his resurrection continue to spread the word. The waves caused by that miracle can't help but reverberate outwards. We'd have expected the Jewish leaders to say, praise God, he has sent his Messiah to rescue us from death's dark shroud. But they don't. This is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. See, they don't want their world upended when God sends his Messiah to break in. Do we? Are we happy to have our world upended? When Jesus rose Lazarus, he threw a big rock into the pond of our lives too. And through it, Jesus is saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. His life was of infinite value, spending a year's wages acknowledging this was a good spend because his death and burial would pay our redemption price and his resurrection would guarantee the resurrection of everyone who believes in him. He really has upended our world. And that's why we shouldn't be surprised at repeated efforts of people in power to silence Christians and to suppress Jesus' influence in the world. But this is why Christians will stick with what the Bible says even if doing so upends the status of our culture, the status quo of our culture, sorry. This is why Christians will actually hold on to biblical truth because they believe Jesus has upended our world and they will seek to honor God in their sexuality because they know from this miracle that a God who raises the dead and restores people, he cannot be evil. He must be good. And therefore, what he writes about human sex and sexuality must be for our good. This is why Christians will keep spreading the word of what Jesus can bring despite the pressure we feel to keep quiet. Because let's be honest, the status quo of life without Christ, without resurrection, without any hope, that is hellish. But the hope and life he brings, that is heavenly. Look at me, he's saying. Father in heaven, open our eyes to see Jesus and keep our eyes open this week that we would not be ashamed of him who loved us and laid down his life for us to win us a hope that is far better than we can imagine. We praise you that you are good 
and help us to be on the side of that good. In Jesus' name, amen.